still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every As we move on here to the dilemma of man or questions regarding man, I think we, we're still talking about the natural universe, but instead of talking about just the created things around us, we're talking about man himself, our experience with ourselves, and what does that inform us uh, with regard uh, to the creator of the universe. And the way I phrase the question here, you see a little bit different, is why is man different? Why is man different? And we're basically saying man is different from other living creatures, other living things in the universe. Man is distinct from them. Uh, And what grows out of that is questions regarding uh, morality and good and evil. And so that's our topic for this week and next week is we're going to be looking at this subject. I want to begin in Psalm, the eighth chapter, Um, the eighth Psalm. We've looked at this before. I said at the beginning of our class, we're going to look at some of the same passages over and over uh, in different aspects of those. So if you turn to Psalm 8, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet. I want to pay close attention. This is a psalm uh, written by David, um, and I want to pay close attention to two things, two elements of this psalm. First is this the obvious thing that David is, you know, observing the heavens, the moon, and the stars. And he is making the point that by comparison, man seems so tiny. Man seems so small in the grand scheme of the universe when you look at everything. And and so that's point number one. But David isn't asking if God notices him. He is affirming that he knows God notices him. He says, what is it about man, basically? What is man that you take thought of him? What is it about God, about man, that man is on the mind of God? Man is on God's mind, he says. And then he goes on to say, that why is it that you care about man? So David understands that First of all, man is on the mind of God. And second of all, that God clearly cares for man. And, the, and there are a lot of ways that you could approach that, uh, those two statements. Um, we've looked at, you know, Acts chapter 14, where uh, Paul makes the argument that we, we're aware of God 
and we are aware of God's kindness because he has left, left witness of himself and that he has provided us rain. You know, that the unit, God has provided for the, the, the living beings on the, in the universe, and he has especially provided for man. So maybe that's what David has on his mind, that God, you know, you have man on your mind and you care for him. But I want to suggest that there's more to this. He goes on to say, um, that he goes on to recognize that man is different from other living beings. He says, you have made him a little lower than God. Now, don't be disturbed if you're reading a translation that says he's a little lower than the angels. The Hebrew word here could be translated that way as well. Um, it doesn't change the meaning of the passage. If you're a little lower than God or you're a little lower than, angel, than the angels, it's the same thing. He says, you have made man a little lower than God. The emphasis here isn't on the being lower. The emphasis really should be on the fact that if you're just a little lower than God, you're over everything else. You're above everything else. And that's what he goes on to say. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. There's a nobility about man that David recognizes. He goes on to say, you make him to rule over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. So if we look at creation, if we're studying the natural world and we're looking at creation, what stands out to all of us by our own experience with ourselves and with others is that man is different than everything that is not man. Man is different than non-man. Now, David could be informed uh, by Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. David would have had the book of Genesis uh, in his day. He would have been aware of, uh, of the writings of Moses. And it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So perhaps David is just saying what Moses had written in Genesis 1. Clearly, Man is different, made in the image of God and made to rule over everything on the earth in the order of creation. But I would suggest that David could have understood that without Genesis 1. That by his experience in the world, in his own life, in the life of others, he could have understood this. If you'll turn over to another passage that we've looked at before, Acts chapter 17, I want to point out that Paul is making this same argument in this speech that we're going to refer to, you know, repeatedly. Paul is making this argument in the speech that he gives in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Beginning in verse 26 in that speech, it says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. 
having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. So there's, you know, this picture that God, you know, and, and it's a reaffirmation of the Genesis story, right? From one man, Adam, God has made all the nations. So the multitudes of the earth came from one man. So he reaffirms Genesis chapter 1 and the Genesis story. But he says, but God uh, has made him, has determined their appointed times, has set the boundaries of his habitation, that the spread of mankind has been governed and ruled by God. But he was, they were made, in verse 27, goes all the way back to he made them. They were made what? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. So Paul is making the argument here in his sermon in Athens is that God made us in a way that we would search for God, that we would search for him. If perhaps we might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, he says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. And then Paul quotes one of their poets. I forget the name, but we actually believe we know the name of the poet that Paul uh, quotes here. But the, even more importantly than that is in Athens, Paul is at the seat of Western philosophical thought. For 500 years, the Greeks have been working out these same topics that we've been talking about. You could go back and read the works of Plato and Aristotle, and you will find amazing things. It's shocking the work that they did trying to work out these questions, these three questions that we're talking about. And it's also remarkable how so close they were to getting it right. And Paul is standing in front of men who would have revered these philosophers. And he says to them, even one of your own poets has said, we are his children. That is, whoever God is, surely we are the children of God. Now, how do you come to that conclusion? Because of what you have experienced about yourself. What you understand about yourself. The questions that your own being raises. You know, I said that, you know, when you look at the heavens, what the, the heavens really do is the heavens force you to ask questions. So if you're a human being out there and you haven't seen the scriptures, you haven't heard anybody talk about God, you look at the universe and it forces you to ask yourself questions. What is all this? And where did it come from? And how did it get here? And what is its purpose? And that was our first question. You are pushed to ask those questions. The Greek philosophers were pushed to ask those questions and try to answer them and wrestle with it. And Paul says, you've asked yourself these questions. And you came up with this. We must be as children. And Paul says, you're right. You're right about that. Being then the children of God, he confirms, being then the children of God, as you have concluded yourself, not, not through the scriptures, but through your observation of all that is. 
You have come to the right conclusion that we are the children of God. Being then the children of God, he says, we ought not to think that the divine nature, that is, Paul's trying to explain God to them. That's the whole point of this sermon, right? He says, that which you worship in ignorance, let me, let me explain that God to you. That's where he began. He says, since we are the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. So he says, if you look at yourself, if you are the children of God, if you are the creation of an infinite mind, which was their conclusion, they were confused about that infinite mind quite a bit, but they had at least come to the conclusion that there is an infinite mind. When you read Plato's writings about this, you know, we're so mindful of you know, Greek mythology and the demigods and all the different gods, but Plato had come to the conclusion there was one. One supreme God. So he had come very close to the right conclusion. And here he's, Paul is saying, if you've come to all those conclusions and you look at yourself, then you know that the divine nature, whatever that is at this point in the conversation, whatever that is that you look at the universe and come to realize there must be someone, there must be an intelligence a mind behind all of this. That's the divine nature that he's referring to. He says, if you look at yourself, then you realize that the divine nature cannot be gold or silver or stone or anything that man has made. In other words, if we're made by God, God cannot be something less than us. And what's interesting is, is the anti-God crowd that is so prevalent in the world today so commonly like to talk about the faith of believers as though we have invented God somehow. And Paul is making the exact opposite argument. He says, we didn't invent God. We cannot invent God. God cannot be something that we can make. He can't be less than us if we're his creation. In fact, when we look at ourselves, we're pretty remarkable. As David said, you have crowned man with glory and majesty. So man can't be an inanimate object. So Paul pushes back with ferocity on the notion that man can invent God. He basically argues that our own experiences with ourselves prove to us, A, that there is a God, and B, he must be much bigger than us. And so that is his argument. And I would suggest to you that that is an argument from natural revelation. Paul is speaking to people who don't know the God of Abraham. He simply says, you have figured this out on your own. Paul is building on their own conclusions you figured this out correctly. You're so close. You're missing it, but you're so close. And your conclusions are the foundation on which you can come to understand and know the, the true living one God. But God, God cannot be something less than us. So building on their own conclusions, he argues for who God is. 
I read uh, on social media yesterday, I, I'm on Twitter. It's the armpit of society for sure. But there are some interesting things there. And um, I, I like to read these long threads where someone proposes some really super comp- controversial thing like there's a God. And all the um, anti-God crowd compiling in. And they usually have some pretty sharp arguments that sound really rational, except they're super uninformed and reflect that someone really has not seriously applied themselves to the questions. But they turn these believers inside out. And there's a reason for that. You know, in Twitter, you can write about this much. And you can't really cover this topic like that. You can't really have a good discussion. You, you know, when you, we, you can only speak in little snippets. It's like the news when you get the little news clips. What that is most useful for is coming to the incorrect understanding. And so a lot of those formats, that's what happens, and people go around in circles, and, and they, they can't have a real intelligent conversation uh, about it. And it's so clear to me that so often the arguments that I read is someone who is simply has gone out and looked for what affirmed what they wanted to believe. Because you can't really look at this subject. I I was so tempted to begin this class with more science quotes um, because there's some really great ones that I didn't get to. Um, And I probably will, in, in our review and summary, try to come back to those. But if you really take the time to look, what you discover is that scientists came to the conclusion, I mean, in massive numbers by some of the leading scientists in the world, have come to the conclusion that they're at a dead end. They can't explain the organization and life in this universe. They have no answers. So they came up with something called the universe, the, the multiverse, you know, which they basically have said, well, the only way we can even possibly explain all this and leave, you know, you know who out of it is to say there must be this infinite number of possible universes. And somewhere if we figure them out, you know, we'll end up with what we've got. If there's just this infinite number of, the problem is there is not one scintilla of evidence that any of that is true. In fact, uh, one of the quotes that I have is one of the leading scientists uh, who, who uh, is talking about this, and he says, basically, we grabbed the multiverse from our imagination because they had no other options. Well, that's what we find so often. When the answers are in front of us, you don't have to be an astrophysicist to have human experience. What we see in ourselves and what we see in mankind in general is one of the most powerful arguments that there is to provoke these questions and to search for these answers. And I believe an honest search for the answers leads us every time to God.
unless, like some of the men that we quoted last week, they openly say, we're not going to allow for that possibility. I'm going to begin my search for answers having said certain things cannot be considered an answer. So when we start talking about mankind and we start looking at man, it's great because, you know, just like the shepherd could stand in the 16th century B.C., a shepherd could stand on a hillside in Palestine and look up and say, oh, my God. And then he could learn from his own experience things about God as a human being. Those are powerful, powerful arguments. So I want to spend the next few minutes talking about the uniqueness of man. So when we think about the uniqueness of man, we first can talk about the physical uniqueness of man, because there are some very uh, startling physical uniquenesses about, I don't remember what my next slide is. Okay, yeah, that was the only one. I didn't make any others. Um, so so we, let's talk about some physical. So I looked up and I thought, like, from a science, scientist standpoint, from a scientist who doesn't believe in God's perspective, how do they identify the uniqueness of man? So I purposely went out to find this. And essentially physical uniqueness, the physical uniqueness of man can really boil down to two things. One is an erect posture and large brains. Those are the things that really are completely unique about man. Man walks on two feet. And he has a straight spine. His spine is perpendicular to the ground. That's unique about man. You know the only other animal that's like that? A penguin. A penguin walks on two feet. And a penguin's spine is perpendicular to the ground. That's it. Man and penguins. We are bipeds. We walk on two feet. Our posture is erect. We are standing up straight. And we look at, you know, uh, you look at primates. You know, you look at these little videos where it shows, you know, chimpanzees and gorillas doing these amazing things. It really is pretty incredible how human-like they can, they can appear. Um, and there are plenty of animals, including chimpanzees and apes and, you know, grizzly bears and a few other animals that can't, you know, poodles, who can walk temporarily on their hind feet, right? But we know that's temporary because their spine is parallel to the ground. So they can't stay on those two feet because their spine is not straight like their legs. So... Um, so we look at some of these other animals, and we're like, well, you know, yeah. some of these animals seem pretty smart, but, but they're still distinctly different than men in terms of posture. But the second thing that I mentioned, the large brain, is the real, the real big factor, right? So if we were to look at, say, chimpanzees and apes, because chimpanzees and apes in many ways, if we look at the animal world, seem to be the closest to us, which is why... Incorrectly, evolutionists in the early days decided we had to have come from apes because when they look around the world, they're like, this is the closest we can get. So this must have been the last step. And then there were some you know, intermittent steps between us. You know, so that's what they come to. But I want you to think about this. 
brain size. In mammals, the size of the brain is roughly proportional to the size of the body. Within certain parameters, if the bigger the animal, the bigger the brain, the smaller the animal, the smaller the brain, but the proportionality remains pretty consistent. A, the average chimpanzee has a brain that weighs 300 cubic centimeters, or is three, in size is 300 cubic centimeters. The human brain, on average, and we're talking proportionally as well, averages 1,300 to 1,400 cubic centimeters, proportionally more than three times the size of what seems to be the closest thing to us. A gigantic difference. But when you look at the brain, there's even more differences inside of the brain. The frontal uh, or the cerebral cortex, which is the part of the brain that does higher functions, you know, the more thinking part of the brain that does higher functions. In human beings, that part of the brain is by far disproportionately large as compared to any other animal. So when we just look at our brain, there's giant differences uh, between us and other animals, this uniqueness. But that's the physical uniqueness. I, and I, I'm going to stop there because the rest of it is all kind of obvious, right? It's all, now, we're not as vicious or capable of being as vicious as animal, a lot of animals. We, we're not as strong as a lot of animals, right? Um, and sometimes we're not really as cute as a lot of animals. You know, I mean, we recognize that there are things, areas in which an animal is stronger, faster, bigger, you know. But would you trade your brain for that? No. No. That's why man is ruling over the universe. And that is really the intellectual capacity of man is what really separates man from a science standpoint from the other animals. So let's talk about that for just a moment. Some things that I saw that get pointed out is that man, uh, humans have the ability to categorize things, to see objects and categorize them in general groups. And you have to think about that for a few moments before you begin to realize how big a deal that is. It's just a more abstract way of seeing the things around you. People can think in abstract form and form images of realities that aren't actually present which allows us to then anticipate future events, to plan for things, and to reason. This is unique about man. Animals don't do these things at all. The self-awareness of man, and I would put all of these things that I'm describing right now under the category of human consciousness. But self-awareness certainly is a primary facet of human consciousness, to be self-aware, the ability to contemplate, death awareness. Now, I don't mean that if you have two dogs and one of them passes away, that one, the one that's living isn't aware the other one died. All I'm saying is, is he wasn't thinking about the potential of the other one dying the day before, no matter how sick he was. He doesn't contemplate that. There's no sense of that. There's only an awareness of what is from an instinctual standpoint. 
Man is capable of, capable of creative and symbolic language, or just language in general. And a lot of uh, uh, the ways in which man, uh, mankind is separated from everything else these days is the aspect of verbalization. The way that we communicate. We have more complex and extremely variable cooperation and social organization. That doesn't mean that wolves don't run in packs and hunt together instinctually, but it doesn't compare. For example, things like legal codes, political systems and institutions, science, literature, art, not to mention the topic we're moving towards, ethics. Animals aren't aware of any of those things. That's the area of man. It is what makes man different. Now, we would say what makes man different is God made us in his image. Which means we have a soul. We come into being and God has made us eternal. Our existence will be eternal. That's unique about man. And of course, we're informed by that by the scriptures. But the rest of this, this instinctual observation of ourselves leads us to all of these things. But finally, the most important distinction is the subject of ethics, the idea of morality. And that will be our topic for next week. We've got about five more minutes. So I'm going to kind of start to introduce this. But we're going to look very heavily at that subject of morality and natural law and those things next week. But scientists do acknowledge this problem of morality. Evolutionists long have wrestled with the idea that man clearly in his human consciousness is aware of right and wrong. And like I said, we'll talk about that more in depth next week. Charles Darwin, in his book, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, very famous book where Darwin is laying out his theory of evolution, he said this, I fully subscribe to the judgment of those writers who maintain that of all the differences between man and the lower animals, the moral sense or conscience is by far the most important. He's right about that. He is very right about that. The thing that distinguishes us by far from the world around us than anything else is morality. And if you stop and think about it, isn't that the only important subject in the Bible? The sin of man, the separation of man from God, and God's effort, his eternal effort to bring us back to him. So when we're talking about man, this becomes the central part of the story. It is also where we sometimes find the biggest challenges. So the question is, why is man so different? Where did consciousness come from? And particularly, where did moral law or the sense of moral laws or natural law, as we're going to talk about next week, come from? Where did it come from? Turn over to Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 1, Paul 
spoke of the fall of uh, the departure of of the Gentile from his uh, relationship with God. He talks about that quite a bit, and 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 we're going to look back at that uh, next week probably for for a moment uh, since we don't have. I was going to do that this morning, but I don't think we're going to have time. Um, but in chapter two, after talking about all of this, when he after talking about uh, verse twenty eight, they did not see fit of chapter one verse twenty eight. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now listen to the list. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul is talking about Gentiles who are not under the law of Moses. So what, how do they know the ordinance of God? How do, well, he explains that in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. He says, for all who have sinned without the law, the Gentiles. All who have sinned without the law perish without the law. For all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law. For, the, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively, or some translations will say by nature, the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Paul here makes the argument for the natural law. How did they know the ordinance of God? Because God had written it in their hearts. They were not under the law of Moses, but they were still subject to the judgment of God. Why? Because they knew who God was. And they knew what was right and what was wrong because God had written it on their hearts. They did instinctively the things that God wanted them to do. So next week, we're going to pick up and talk about this subject of the natural law. Does it exist? There are obviously uh, arguments that people make against it. We're going to defend the natural law as a big part of uh, the natural revelation of God. So that's our subject. And there are other topics in this area of morality we'll hit while we're there. Thank you for your attention. The Lord is in his Again, thanks for listening. If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence, peace.